This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotion promotional offer not available in washington dc Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. On today's episode, we're having a spoiler-filled conversation about The Mandalorian, Chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars expert Brian Young. That is me. Okay, guys, we've all seen this episode, but before we talk about this episode, let's let's uh, get into some feedback. Uh, usually, we answer your questions. You write into us at peter.com, and we read them here. But actually, today, we're actually going to read a couple things that were not, um, not emails. Uh, first of which, last week, we were talking about the, uh, the timeline. I mean, we're always talking about the timeline, trying to figure out where the Mandalorian is set in the timeline. We'll never know until they decide. But um, uh, an update to that uh, that conversation. So TV Line had an article where they they do this thing where they answer questions sent in from fans. And uh, someone named Michael wrote in, uh, we know the first season of the Mandalorian was set in 9 ABY. Is it the same with the other seasons? That is the ship? in the show's set in the same period or have we moved to another year? So in this article, it says, uh, quote, I ran your question by executive producers, John Favreau and Dave Filoni on Monday, Michael. And the latter said that while he didn't have a, have his specific notes in front of him, I don't think we're quite at 10 ABY. And then, um, 
Uh, Favreau told me Monday, quote, we talk about this so much, especially since, uh, quote, we also have Ahsoka and the skeleton crew coming up, which are taking place at the same time period. But yes, we're still in the first third of the second gap in the nine movie Skywalker saga. Yeah, that says to me. Nothing is set in stone. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, I I could just imagine Filoni being like, yeah, yeah, I don't have my specific notes in front of me. That's that's his code of like, I don't want to commit to anything. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Because he knows. He doesn't need notes. <laughs> but, uh, Brad, do you have any reading from any of this? Is, is this basically them saying they don't want to commit to stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. And like, you know, Brian has always said, like, why would you unless you absolutely had to? And like... I don't know. I feel like we'll all be better off if we just stop trying to like really, really <laughs> pin down the timeline and figure it out. Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't benefit us much, and we're we're kind of just like nitpicking at details just because like we get some kind of comfort out of having like you know a defined timeline. Yeah, I think that conversation was interesting in the first season because you kind of wanted to know how much after Return of the Jedi it was set but like yeah, now yeah. it's nice to have like an idea but like we don't need to be like super specific about it like it's not you know this december 5th you know uh 30 i mean yeah no it'll matter if we see young ben solo or something and and we know exactly when he was conceived and how old he was later like that would put a pin in exactly when it's set but they're never gonna do that <laughs> Yeah, and there's not like there's a ton of stuff going on in the time period between Return of the Jedi and uh, Force Awakens, or no. at least this early period. Uh, really, you have Alphabet Squadron, that trilogy of books, which was terrific, but set way out in the middle of nowhere, and Aftermath, which they've incorporated with Cobb Vanth and all of that stuff. Yeah, so I don't think it really matters where it is until it intersects with something else. But that's not going to happen probably anytime soon. So, I mean, maybe it will happen with Ahsoka and like kind of the the Rebels epilogue, but you don't even need to know when that was. So, well, that's that's really nebulous about when that took place, too. Yeah. Like it was just sometime after Return of the Jedi when shrug. (laughs) Okay, guys, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about today, Ben was like, you know, can you talk about the Star Wars news? Because you mentioned in yesterday's episode, but he didn't really go into it. Um, And that is yesterday. Variety had the story. It was a Star Wars shakeup. Kevin Feige and Patty Jenkins movie shelves. Taika Waititi looking to star in his own film. So what the story basically says is uh, Patty Jenkins movie. Wait, what was the name of it? Rogue Squadron? Rogue Squadron, yeah. Yes. Uh, is not ha- not in active development anymore, which we kind of knew. I thought this wasn't new news, but um, uh, the I guess the biggest news for, for me is Kevin Feige because we knew that he had a screenwriter developing a – some kind of project, a, a movie project for Lucasfilm is set in the Star Wars universe. And uh, uh, and that is apparently no longer in active development. So, it's not like he's not busy. Yeah. And plus, but, uh, I, I feel like, too, like, I don't think this is a thing, too, where, like, these movies aren't happening necessarily either. Like, they're just not the primary focus. And to me, what this says is that Lucasfilm is just, like, 
getting their ducks in a row and figuring out what is going to be like their their first official step into the new era of Star Wars. And Kevin Feige's movie won't be part of that initial push. It doesn't mean it won't happen, but it's just not like going to be like happening immediately. Yeah, and uh, Taika Waititi is obviously he's developing his own Star Wars movie, and the big news here is that he's apparently going to star in it. Which, I mean, I guess it's news, but isn't Taika Waititi in all of his movies? Yeah, and I think it probably depends too on how big the role is. I think there was one of the trades mentioned that it was a role like uh, the like akin to like how prominent he was in Jojo Rabbit. Um, which was a supporting role, but it's, he was still there. But yeah, I mean, it's not really a surprising thing that he would appear in his own movie. Yeah. Uh, but this new story is going everywhere. People are kind of like, you know, what does this mean for the future of Star Wars? And I think we're going to find that out uh, next month at Star Wars Celebration, where they're going to have a, a big panel. It's going to be broadcast live on the interwebs. Um, and uh, they're going to announce the future of Star Wars movie. W- what do you guys think is going to be announced at Celebration? Any theories? I mean, I, I feel like it's going to be there's they have to announce movie stuff. Like, I mean, that's really what it, what the the focus has to be. You know, it's just a matter of like which movies that we've heard rumblings about are actually going to be part of that lineup. Oh, so you think it's going to be stuff we've already heard about? Yeah, I mean, I can't I, I can't imagine there's going to be a lot that we haven't heard about. You know, like may, there there might be one surprise. Like, I'm, I'm sure Lucasfilm is pretty good at keeping secrets at this point. Um, so there might be something that we haven't yeah. heard about that will end up getting announced, but yeah, my, my guess is that it's, it'll just be confirming, you know, things that we've heard maybe with some new details to like, just give, give us a little bit of a treat to hold us over. So probably take away TT. We're going to learn what that's about and probably whatever this Damon Lindelof thing is. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think? What were you going to say, well, Brian? I think that they're definitely going to announce some movie stuff. I think Brad is probably right. I think both of you are probably right. It's going to be. Taika Waititi up front and center, and then some hints about what's going to come after that. I really think most of what we're going to get is teases of Ahsoka and Skeleton Crew and stuff like that for the rest of the year. Um, And they've already announced there's not going to be another celebration in 2024. So they'll probably tease what, what our slate for 2024 is going to be as far as TV shows. But other than that, like... We'll have a, a celebration in 2025 to talk about what all the the feature film stuff is going to be. By the way, that uh, I know when when they announced that they weren't going to have a celebration in 2024, people were surprised online. But uh, I mean, Brian, you've been to almost every celebration. You know I that missed... they, it happens every two years, usually, right? Well, in the beginning, it was three years. They yeah. came out in tandem with the prequel trilogy episode one came out in 99. And so that was celebration one. And then there wasn't another one till 2002 with attack of the clones. To be honest, I feel like we should have them every three years. If nothing else, just because they're, they're exhausting in the best ways, but like um, every year is too much. I agree. Um, it, it's, it's fun. And I feel like if you do them every three years, you have some big announcements, you can show some cool stuff. Um, the only reason we kind of had one, uh, two years in a row is because of the pandemic and the Anaheim one, uh, got pushed back. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and we had them pretty much every year when we had, um, Star Wars movies coming out every year. Oh, did we? Um, they would alternate between like it was like Anaheim oh, yeah, one and in then Europe. Orlando and then one in Europe. Um, and then they came back and then, 
the yeah so it's exhausting though because i went to all of those <laughs> well you get a break brian I, I appreciate it. I really do. I'm excited. I don't want anybody to think I'm not excited that I'm going to celebration and I'm I'm doing a few panels too. So if anybody, that's the big news. Forget all the movie news. It's that you could come see me talk live. Um, okay. So if you're going to celebration, you're going to uh, what is the convention center they're called? The Excel. Excel. By the way, if you go into the upstairs of that, they use that for Avengers Campus. I mean, not Avengers Campus, uh, Avengers HQ in the, in the movies. So uh, you can see uh, some of the filming locations. Actually, also uh, Batman. I think he's one of the Bat- Nolan Batman movies. Anyways, uh, besides that, Brian, you're going to be there. So what panels can people see you at? Um, I'm doing a Full of Sith episode. Full of Sith is my Star Wars podcast outside of this that goes every week. And uh, I'm going to be joined by my co-host, Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class and Matt Martin from The Story Group. Uh, and then I'm doing a panel about the cinema and the movies behind Star Wars, which is sort of my normal beat uh, for Slash Film now. It used to be for StarWars.com. And then another panel um, about, I don't remember what, honestly. <laughs> I should go look. I pitched it. I should know. Um Oh, it's the Star Wars trailer park. I know this. Ah. Uh, we did this at the last celebration, and I curated a whole bunch of really obscure trailers and advertisements involving Star Wars um, and showed them to an audience, and I'm sort of curating a new batch of really interesting stuff across the history of Star Wars ads, and I'm calling it the Star Wars trailer park. Well, very cool. Uh, okay, it, it, do either of you have anything else to say about this uh, variety report about um, Feige and it, Jenkins? It was pretty confident to mention that Ryan Johnson's is still, uh, they still want it to happen, but they need to wait for him to get his stuff done, which is sort of the drumbeat I've been on for a while. Yeah, and he's, he's going to be pretty busy anyway because he's got a Knives Out sequel and a second season of Poker Face, and it's just it's going to take him a while. And I think there's no real rush because I, I'm willing to bet that whatever he wants to do is not something that is intended to be like an integral part of like the next era of Star Wars, which is why it's not a priority right now. Oh, yeah. He said it's like unconnected to anything. I think yeah. that's the only thing we know about it is, and, is that. And to go back to something that you've said in the past is like, why would he want to do that? I think there are a lot of those people that show up in his mentions that say, you know, Ryan Johnson's a good filmmaker. I just didn't like this movie because of what it did. Mm. Giving him something unconnected would probably, uh, you're making these people sound a lot uh, nicer than they are. (laughs) Well, there are some that are nice. The rest of them are, are, are bots or Gamergate (laughs) folks or people not worth necessarily listening to. I don't know. I, I still don't think it's going to happen. Call me cynical. Call me like, I don't know. I, I just don't. If if I'm Ryan Johnson and I can go out and make a Knives Out movie and then it'll be acclaimed and everybody loves it. And then like nobody comes into my, you know, Twitter mentions every day threatening my life and stuff. Like that. You know, maybe well, I'll do that instead of Star Wars. Wait, wait a second. Did you see Ben Shapiro sending all of his people over to, to <laughs> Ryan Johnson over the last Knives Out movie? This just happens to him oh, no matter did what. It? Oh, I didn't see that. Okay. Oh, it, you should look it up. It was Ben Shapiro owned himself over and over and over again, just as he does normally. Yeah, that's an evergreen comment right there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, we'll keep our, keep our eye on uh, Star Wars Celebration as that uh, comes up. Uh, is it beginning of April? Yeah, it's less than a month from now. Wow. Okay, let's get into the episode. Let's get into our brief reactions. Uh, I'll start things out pretty quickly. I'll say that I thought when when I watched the first episode of this season of Mandalorian. I thought we were going to take to like at least the mid season, if not like the penultimate episode to see a lot of the things that happen in this episode happen. So I'm so shocked that they hit, you know, the, the pedal to the gas and, you know, we went to Mandalore. We've you know, there's so much cool mythology that has been expanded upon here. Uh, cool creatures not not just like the the same creatures we see in every star wars thing uh some really cool designs uh lots of cute grogu moments um i, I don't know i just love this episode brad brief reaction on this episode yeah i personally wish that this episode was part of the overall premiere i don't understand especially since they had the actual premiere in hollywood be the first two episodes they really should have just released both of these episodes on the same day uh especially since that first episode was so short and did so much table setting like this would have been a great way to like truly begin the season and maybe it's just because disney wants the mandalorian to dominate you know the online conversation you know as long as it can every single week with just a singular new episode uh you know that's fine if that's their strategy but i think it would have been a lot more exciting if this was the the actual way that the show uh premiered season three because it's there's a lot of cool stuff here um you know from action to cool reveals uh great things from both mando and grogu and just some cool new star wars creatures and stuff too like it's just it's it's full of a lot of the cool stuff uh that makes mandalorian great so yeah i i really dug this episode brian give us your brief reaction i uh Naturally, I, I enjoyed this a lot more than the first episode. Um, I thought the first episode was fine, but this just really took everything to another level. And to your point, Peter, it felt a lot like watching uh, Avengers Endgame a little bit where you're like, OK, they're going to go take down Thanos. And then four minutes into the movie, they cut his head off. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know what that. I mean? Yeah. And it's like, OK, we're doing all of this right now. Cool. Because what that does, it makes me excited because we've got so much possibility for the rest of the season now, because all of the stuff that felt like they needed to put, you know, check marks next to is done already. I thought we were going to have like a bunch of fetch quests with like them having to build up ig11 and all that stuff to lead to this moment i was uh, yeah it's great well that and now that was, now we're kind of in the same position that we were with season two as well where uh, i think it took a little longer for season two but most of the stuff that we've seen in the trailers for mandalorian has already happened in these two episodes with the exception of like three or four random random shots that don't really reveal a whole lot so there's plenty of stuff that we have no idea what's coming with this season and I really loved how they threw his quest out almost immediately in this episode. She's like, no, here's another droid. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh, any other thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I, I think this episode leaned a lot on that Lord of the Rings mythology that Dave Filoni really brings to the table. Uh, he's been doing that a lot. You know, we've got Ahsoka the White, uh, you know, at the end of Rebels that that's whose show ostensibly that we're getting really. Um, and that Tolkien influence is very apparent where you have the minds of Mandalore um, 
which feels very much like it is completely intentional. I have to assume that it's called the Mines of Mandalore and we have the Mines of Moria and there's some similar themes and Mm. all that stuff there. Okay, uh, I really want to talk to you guys about this, uh, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Okay, we're back. Let's jump into it. Uh, this episode was directed by Rachel Morrison, who is better known as a director of photography. She worked with Ryan Coogler on his earlier his early efforts, uh, Fruitvale Station and Black Panther. And she was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography for her work on uh, Mudbound in 2017, which made her the first woman to ever be nominated for that award. And she also worked on Dope, uh, which is a film that Rick directed. So I'm guessing that's how she probably got involved with this. Uh, but she she has directed uh, about a dozen episodes of television, including shows like American Crime, The Morning Show, American Crime Story. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on because this episode, I think, does have a different feel and look to it than a lot of the other Mandalorian episodes. Like, I feel like uh, you can feel her touch on uh, what she brought, what she brought to this episode. Any any thoughts on Morrison uh, directing this episode? I thought she brought a really strong cadence to and a rhythm to the episode. I mean, the episode feels a little repetitive if you look at it on paper, but she keeps it fresh, right? Like how many times do they have to descend down in Sundari city? And they kind of keep going over that quest over and over again. Um, But it feels new and different and exciting every single time because there's that energy to the things that she was doing and bringing to the table there. Yeah. And it's also like a, a darker episode because a lot of it's set in that like underground, um, the, yeah. the underground of Mandalore. Um, okay. Uh, we begin on Tatooine where we see two speeders. Are they speeders or pod racers? Those were not pod racers. Yeah, they yeah, look like speeders. speeders. Yeah, those are definitely land speeders. Yeah. Uh, they're racing so, and there's some fireworks going off. This is most Eisley. The pod race happens in Mos Espa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I think I was a little confused because this is also uh, Bunta Eve, which we'll talk about in a second, second which has some ties to pod racing. Um, uh, so I guess there's more than just pod racing on Tatooine. They also race speeders there as well. 
Well, and they also race T-16s through Beggar's Canyon, and they bullseye Womp Rats. I mean, this is the long history of Tatooine since A New Hope. Yeah. And also, I want to say it's always good seeing this planet from a different angle. Uh, the first shot of this from above was kind of cool, especially with, like, the fireworks and stuff going off. Um, so, okay. Uh, Arodian tries to haggle with Telemoto to fix his or her speeder and uh, reluctantly pays her for to work extra hard on Bunta Eve. Uh, many people might recognize Bunta Eve or the word Bunta. Brian, tell us about it. Uh, Bunta Eve is the holiday that the uh, Bunta Eve classic pod race happens. This is from Phantom Menace. It's a hut holiday. Um, if you go into the canon, it's a hut holiday that is predicated on one of their ancestors ascending to godhood. And it's very important on Tatooine because the Huts used to uh, run Tatooine. But even now, it seems that people have sort of adopted the holiday of the, as their own, even though the Huts are gone. Um, but yeah, so it, it's it's been a holiday on Tatooine since Phantom Menace. Yeah, and you're talking about Bunta the Hut, I'm guessing, right? No, um, there's it's there's a really long name for the Hut. Oh no, um, okay. <laughs> It's fine. You don't have to look it up. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. So the festival is mostly observed in parts of Mos Espa, and notably the Bunta Eve Classic, which is that pod racing um, race that happens every year. And uh, we saw that in Phantom Menace. It's uh, appeared in Clone Wars and various books. Um, uh, the, the the actor here playing uh, the Rodian is Don Dininger, who played uh the Rodian prisoner and book of boba fett she's a special effects fabricator and makeup artist that's worked on like 50 big movies and uh very occasionally she is the one under some of the appliances that she creates like the monsters in uh one missed call and uh some of the star wars stuff so cool um okay so after uh they leave hidden jawas who stole the parts from the speeder come in to reveal that it was all they were all in cahoots it was a scam uh to scam the the, the alien out of money and uh i think this is fun right like Pe- pelimoto uh, she's always like uh she's not like the uh the most honest person in the world <laughs> no no not at all <laughs> uh maybe even the galaxy yeah, yeah, I mean she's she's like yeah she's like a like a used car salesman basically. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so uh, the two Jawas are played by Wiwani She and Ariel She, uh, who are mother daughter team of little person actors. They have played various Jawas in all the seasons of Mando and the Book of Boba Fett. And Wiwani played Tika, the Jawa that delivered the. Uh, T-16 toy to Obi-Wan Kenobi in, in the show Obi-Wan Kenobi. So, yeah. Um, and by the way, those are the only people in the credits. Those three people. Uh, the two Jawas and the Rodian and uh, everything else was like above uh, above the line uh, during concept art. So that's kind of uh, different. Very different for a Mandalorian episode. You usually have like pages of credits. Uh, okay, so anyways. Mando lands in the hangar and Grogu does a full body f- flip out of the spacecraft into Pelly's arms and uh, 
Pelly asks, who taught him to leap like a Lerman? What is a Lerman? So Lerman are a pacifistic species that look sort of like a mix between raccoons and squirrels. And they were first seen in the first season of The Clone Wars. There's a really great two-parter where Ayla Sakura and Anakin and Ahsoka, and I think Obi-Wan too, um, they have a misjump with their hyperdrive and they end up on the planet Mygito. And the Lerman are there. And uh, the Trade Federation is sort of taking over the planet, but the Lerman are pacifists. I want to say this is the episode that George Takei was in also as the evil Locke Durd, uh, another Trade Federation uh, <laughs> mucky muck. And uh, so they had to struggle with whether or not they were going to fight to survive or let themselves be rolled over by the Trade Federation and the Jedi sort of try to defend them against their wishes and some of the youth in uh, Lerman are cool. They're in the first season of clone wars. I'm belaboring the point. Yeah. And that episode was called uh Jedi crash and, uh, but and did, defenders of peace. Yeah. Did you know that the species was actually designed by Robert E Barnes for star Wars episode three revenge of the Sith, but ultimately they were cut f- from the production and ended up in the clone wars. So that's kind of cool. There's um, there's no wasted idea in Star Wars. They all get recycled. Yeah. Uh, so Pelly thinks that Grogu actually said her name. But I wanted to ask you guys because to me it just sounded like random baby mumble mumbles. Yeah, she's a grifter. All I heard was random baby mumbles too. Yeah, I mean he's he's basically uh, been saying there, there's one word that sounds like he's saying like people have discerned that it kind of sounds like Patu. But like, and he says it like several times, so maybe it means something to him, but no one else really knows what it means or something like that, or maybe it's just general baby talk. But yeah, it's he's not really saying anything. Yeah, Jenna Bush on slashfilm.com did an article about this about Patu, which um, by the way is never closed caption. It would always say like uh, you know Grogu like uh, coos or something like that. It like never says the actual word, so I don't count it as a word, but. Um, he said this word at least seven other times and um, uh, Jenna actually lays it out. She has a bunch of theories on what Patu could mean, ranging from I'm hungry to Papa. So uh, you can read her article. And she also puts out the theory that maybe this is a word like uh, the word Groot that the Marvel character of the same name uses for everything, which I kind of like, but I, don't, I doubt it's true. So I wanted to ask you guys, I think her saying this, yes, is a funny beat, but I think that's putting it in our minds of like, I've never thought about it. Like, when is Grogu going to say a word? What is the word going to be? And I feel like this is a setup to get us to think about that. So I wanted to put it to you guys. What do you think Grogu's first word is going to be? I think they're going to use the recording of Elizabeth Taylor saying, daddy. From the Simpsons. No, I have like it's probably going to be Papa Din or some variation on that. Especially since Bo Katong keeps calling him Dinjarin, it might be Dinjarin. Could be this is the way. I guess that would be more than one word. <laughs> Brad, any thoughts on Gregor's first words? I, I hope it's an obscenity. <laughs> I hope so too. Okay. Uh, 
Mando is here to find a replacement for the IG unit memory circuits that he needs. And uh, even the Jawas don't think they can find it. Instead, she offers R5-D4. Doesn't want to go as much as Mando doesn't want him. And uh, I want to say there's some great droid acting here. It's very hard to make practical droids uh, act in the way that they made R5 here. here. It's cool. Um, And Pelly delivers the bad news. Um, She says, no chance cubes, which I'm guessing means no dice. It's like the Star Wars version. No, yeah, no I dice. gotta say, I, and I, I don't know if it's just because this is like the way Pelimoto talks uh, a lot, but uh, th- this was something that reminded me that I, I always just feel like weird whenever like they turn uh, common colloquialisms and phrases in our language into Star Wars versions, but they feel like really unnatural. Like this, this, this one was the most egregious one to me. Like saying "no chance cubes," it's like that doesn't roll off the tongue. Like no one's gonna <laughs> turn that into a common phrase. Uh, like no dice like no no dice is something that like is it's quick and like it, it gets to the point it makes sense no chance cubes it's like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> i would i would guess this would be hilarious to me my guess is that john favreau put no dice in the script and dave filoni's like you know in star wars they're not uh they're not dice john <laughs> yeah they're vegas they're chance cubes and favreau thought that was funny i found it funny i like chance cubes i one of my favorite purchases on Batu are the chance cubes. Hey, uh, I have, I have chance have. cubes. I have chance cubes too. I thought it was a cool, like fun in world thing uh, to have, but I also just like the, 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 the certain turns of phrases just sound, sound weird to me. There's another one here too, where Palimoto says like Mando ship is purring like a, a, a knees beast or nizzle beast or something. I forget what it, what it was. Yeah. I didn't even, but, I think that that's just, down. I think I think they can get away with the more egregious ones because that's how she talks. It is that used car salesman. Everything is a bad idiom. Yeah, because okay. no one else does that. In <laughs> at least in this episode, I'm sure other characters have, but yeah, in this episode, it's just Pelly. Yeah. Uh, so Pelly reinstalls the droid port so the R5 can make the journey with them. And the N1 Starfighter rockets off as fireworks explode in the sky as Grogu watches on. And I, I love this beautiful shot of, like, the fireworks reflecting off the the, the dome of the, the starship and uh, Grogu looking out at it. it. This moment made me really sad. Um, Why? Thinking back to Anakin winning the pod race in Phantom Menace and getting whisked away quickly after Maul trying to kill him and, and Qui-Gon... And the day he got to win the race, the day he saved the day, the day he won his freedom, like he had to get whisked away before he could see any of that celebration over his victory or any of the fireworks on Tatooine and any of its beauty. Hmm. Um, Maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it made me very sad for Anakin. See, I wouldn't have even connected those two things. I I love the perspective that you you bring here, Ryan. And, And your love of the prequels. (laughs) <laughs> yeah um okay so uh title of the episode you mentioned before is the minds of mandalore which i think pretty seems pretty on the surface but brian i ask you every week is there more to this well i think that there's something in the minds of mandalorian culture that um if you look at the exchanges between bo and din Djarin here they're both mining their understanding of what it means to be a mandalorian especially with that really great moment where she starts revealing her history of her father to him, that they're both trying to scratch deeper beneath the surface of each other. 
yeah I can, I can definitely uh i can definitely see that um okay so the ship flies towards mandalore by the way didn't they go to mandalore last episode uh they went to a moon of mandalore seems weird that they went there last episode and then like went to Tatooine and then, then they had to go back to Mandalore because so my guess is that looking from I, I looking from a perspective of where all of that stuff fits in it had to have happened before Pelimato changed the droid port so it was definitely at the beginning of Din's journey my thinking is that that was a scene that was actually written before he goes to Navarro and he goes to her and says, I want to go back to Mandalore. And she says it's poison, but emotionally that beat with Bo-Katan happens at the end because it's more of an impactful emotional moment, even though the order of the scenes might feel awkward. Uh, that he would have gone to her first. I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. And my guess is it was written earlier in the script. It was the first place he went uh, after the armorer, but they moved it to the end of the episode because the end wasn't as satisfying. And they wanted to have that emotional punch of Bo-Katan there uh, in, in post. And that's why, looking at it on the surface logically from our perspective like wait he flew from there to there to there it doesn't make a lot of sense but story-wise and emotionally it makes more sense yeah um okay so the mandalore is a green planet covered with turbulent storm clouds as the as the audio description puts it uh grogu's scared mando has never seen mandalore he grew up on uh the moon of concordia um, what do we know about Concordia? Um, Concordia is one of those names that goes back deep into Mandalorian lore. Um, before Boba Fett got a proper background in Attack of the Clones, um, the protectors of Mandalore, the, the journeyman protectors that Boba Fett was and how his real name was Jaster Mareel and stuff is... He was there protecting Concordia and the Concordia Dawn and and things like that. Um, We do know from Book of Boba Fett, maybe some other places in Mandalorian that, or maybe even just the first episode, that they hid uh, the 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 covert that the Mandalorian is is part of. They were on Concordia when the purge happened, and that's why they were safe and able to flee. Um, but we haven't seen a whole lot of Concordia. Um, we've seen some other places. Um, Rebels had some places very similar or nearby with Fen Rao's story, um, which is worth checking out. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, it was also mentioned in that like armor uh, backstory in Boba Fett, right? Yeah, yeah, when she, yeah. Yeah, um, it's strange to me that all these Mandalorian lived on the moon of Mandalore and no one all these years chose to actually visit Mandalore. Well, they were told it was poisonous and they'd seen how badly it was devastated. 
So could this be an – you see what you're saying here, Brian? What I'm saying is could this be an analogy for the way in the sect of Mandalorians? Like they're saying like, you know, this is the way things are. You you need to buy – you know, believe it on the surface that this is how things are. Don't yeah. look any further. But, you know, he's looking further and he finds it's not what was to be said. I think I think that's a lot of his journey through season two, right? Like these are what real Mandalorians are, and he found every different iteration of someone who could be considered a Mandalorian or Mandalorian adjacent on that journey, and found that there were different ideas of what that was. And I don't think if he'd have gone, I think that if he hadn't gone on that journey, maybe he wouldn't have felt comfortable taking his mask off in that episode um, to rescue Grogu. Um, okay, uh, Mando shows Grogu the, the layout of the system and explains that a Mandalorian needs to understand maps and know the way around. That way they will never be lost, which I love that quote. Um, Raphael in her Slack channel brought up an interesting idea that uh, maybe Mandalore is paying homage to Tamora Morrison's Pacific Islander heritage by having Mandalorians be such expert navigators and able to find home wherever they are since they lost Mandalore. I don't know. I thought that was like an interesting uh, thought, uh, even if it, it isn't intentional. Um, whether, whether it's intentional or not. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. I really, what I saw in this as I watched it a second time was this moment was changing Din's arc, if you look at the way Din referred to or dealt with Grogu in the cockpit in previous seasons, it was very much annoyed and and Grogu was just sort of trying to find things to occupy himself. But now he's now that Grogu's returned to him, he's taking responsibility of being his father. But also from a filmmaking perspective, the moment where Grogu jumps back into the cockpit of the n1 looks up at r5 and points to the moon uh that that bo katan is on wouldn't have worked without this moment Hmm. uh the n1 starfighter flies through the atmosphere of mandalore like it's rainy and stuff but once they get past the clouds uh they can see the planet's surface actually looks like it's covered in this green glass like we saw in last week's episode uh Brad, what are your thoughts on the look of Mandalore? Uh, looks pretty bleak. Feeling <laughs> kind of rough. Uh, you know, not not really the kind of place you want to hang out much or uh, really feel like you want to restore. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it looks that bad. I, I, I want to say I like how the planet looks almost nothing like any of the planets we've seen in Star Wars, or at least in the live action stuff. It has this like glossy, translucent shards of green... Uh, I think they call the Trinite uh, jagging upwards. I don't know. I I thought it was interesting looking, but I I would say too, if you look at the, the depictions of Mandalore when it was still habitable in rebels and Mandalore uh, in clone wars, um, these domed cities that we see, we see Sundari city here. um, It was always in the middle of these vast deserts because the Mandalorians had bombed it into desert, over the course of their many years, over many centuries anyway. So it's not like Mandalore was overly, you know, inviting as a planet as it was. 
Okay. Uh, so the fusion bombs from the purge are disturbing the magnetic field and interfering with the ship's navigational system. This is a long way of them establishing that there's it's impossible to communicate with anyone outside of the atmosphere, which I'm sure will come into play later in this episode. Uh, R5 is sent on a recon mission, and they watch him on the radar before his reading completely disappears. And uh, Grogu is obviously concerned, so Mando is forced to go out after the droid, and he finds this um, the, this expansive ruins of the, an underground city. And Brian, you wrote a whole article about the city. Yeah, Sundari City. This is where all of the action in the Clone Wars and in a lot of what happens in Rebels takes place. Sundari City is the, um, you know, it's the capital of Mandalore. We saw so much action here, whether it's in the city itself or the Undercity. The Undercity uh, that they go to all of those round pipes and paths everywhere. That's where Darth Maul or Lord Maul at that point leads Ahsoka down to when they, they're sieging Mandalore um, uh, in the seventh season of Clone Wars. So we've seen a lot of this city at its height and it's really devastating to see it so ruined. Yeah. Uh, so Mando is suddenly attacked by three creatures with clubs and we'll learn more about what they are later. But uh, it's interesting to me that the planet was thought to be completely poisonous, you know, it was abandoned. There's no life out there, but um, obviously there's, we see various kinds of life in, in, in this episode. Brad, what what are your thoughts on, on on that on the the creatures that are on the yeah yeah planet? creatures of uh, mandalore yeah i mean they're uh they're pretty pretty sketchy uh pretty monstrous and i do th- there's one thing i wonder and like i don't know this is like a kind of a thing too where you it's there, there's always this kind of perspective and when it comes to sci-fi and stuff like that of like the whether the monsters are really monsters and like these the, the alamites as they call them, like apparently they've been around for for a while, like since the, the time of uh, Bo-Katan's father, even right? Isn't that what, what was said, Brian? Yeah, that and and this is their first appearance in Star Wars, so yeah. it's. I wonder they, if if like have they like if this is like a species that has kind of like collapsed on itself and like become more primitive and like animalistic because Mandalore has has like uh, was I don't know taken over or like what's taken away from them and if like you know treating them like this maybe isn't the best thing because maybe they're just like you know creatures just trying to get by the way whatever way they can you know like are they are they sinister are they just like predators and like you know should we really be happy that like they're getting their ass kicked by mandalorian and and grogu (laughs) so you're saying they're they're the new uh tuscan raiders maybe 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 yeah um okay so mando eventually defeats the alamites um, with some hard-hitting action there, and uh, returns to the Starfighter with R5-D4, who gives an analysis of the toxicity, and the atmosphere is breathable, it turns out. Um, a couple things here. I don't understand why he actually had to send R5-D4 down there. I guess I guess he couldn't fly down there. Okay, I don't, I'm not going to argue well, with that one. 
he didn't have the instruments yeah. on like his helmet to do the analysis. Yeah, yeah. Um, why do you think the Mandalorian people were led to believe that the atmosphere wasn't breathable? And I know, like, there might be the thought, like, oh, over the years the poison has gone away and it's become more inhabitable. But clearly, these creatures were there before. You know they the could, the siege they of could Mandalore. Breathe different things. Oh, so you you do you, are you saying that you think that it has become breathable, or do you think it's always? I'm been saying, like the timeline will know when it matters to the story. <laughs> like, and and that's like however you want to read it is a valid read. Whether you read it as they've been lied to the whole time, or that it has become breathable, or maybe in the immediate aftermath, you know. You can't turn a city, a, a planet like that into a wasteland without dealing with some sort of nuclear winter-like ramifications. And, and who knows how long that might take to subside. Maybe Mandalore got through it very quickly, uh, or, or maybe it took a few years or a decade or whatever. Um, who knows? I also think it's weird that like the Empire didn't try to... like do something on Mandalore because obviously we're told that the mines of Mandalore is where like the Beskar ore comes from. And we're, it's already established in this canon and this actually this show that Beskar is like a really expensive metal. It's really hard to come by. Well, they, they, they did, you know, they, they explored it in this show. They took all of it that they could and turned it into ingots and put, you know, stamped Imperial logos on it and used it for currency. I feel like couldn't they set up, I, I know it was probably a devastated place, but couldn't they set up like a mining operation and have people enslaved to work there to, I don't know. It feels like there there's more to be mined out of this devastated it's, city. My, my guess is like the empire is so huge and they had so many bigger priorities and this happened right at the tail end of the war too. Oh yeah. Right? Like they fought through most of the war with with Bo-Katan in charge uh you know because they had gone through the entire I mean they had been taking those resources in the period between um Revenge of the Sith and um Rebels. And it wasn't until Rebels happened and sort of that a new hope era that the the Mandalorians started fighting back and it doesn't sound as though like the night of the night of a thousand tears sounds like it happened somewhere in the empire strikes back area of the timeline. So this is only a few years old in the empire by empire strikes back. They were pretty overextended and Beskar was not a vital material that they needed to create a second death star. Yeah. Okay, so Mando and Grogu jetpack down to the underground civic center in in the sewers below. Seems a little weird to me that Grogu's pram can just like navigate vertically like a like an elevator or something. <laughs> but whatever. Um Mando finds a a white Mandalorian helmet beneath the ground before the floor closes in around Mando like a bear tra- a trap. And uh, but it's not a trap. It's a giant mechanical arachnid creature. And uh, I'm sure uh, Brad was talking about this earlier with the with the 
the the other creatures. But how, how cool is this design, Brad? It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's like very like almost like grie- grievous kind of like. It's yeah, like it's, it's kind of it's yeah a little bit of grievous because it combines like like organic body parts like there's that that eye and like in some kind of container but also this like cronenberg-esque like uh robot body uh and like the way it's able to connect into you know the that larger uh kind of crab vehicle thing and then but it can also like jump into the the smaller you know even even creepier body yeah it's this is like one of the most gnarly cool uh creations we've seen in star wars in a while and the creator of it is phil tippett so it's yeah. designed by Phil and this Tuck. and this feels like something that could have like been in his uh, his recent stop motion animated movie Mad God too. He's uh, he's got some pretty like twisted like creature designs and ideas, and this this definitely felt like something that could have been in that world. Brian, any thoughts on Tippet or this creature? It was so cool. Like I didn't realize that Tippet was involved until after, and I saw the credits. But watching this thing move, especially when its head sort of. Um, <laughs> disengages and it it crawls for its bigger machine it looked so much like something of phil tippett's work that i had that stop motion sort of vibe in my head totally uh so mando is brought back to a cave and he's put in this like rotisserie kind of cage kind of thing and it's revealed that a smaller mechanical creature comes out of this uh mech is it a, yeah, I guess you'd call it a mechanized uh, exosuit or something. Uh, I don't even know how to describe this thing. The thing that comes out of it has like an eye like this. Uh, it's, it's just a cyborg creature. <laughs> um, and this is another one of those things that reminded me of Lord of the Rings, right? Like this is this is Bilbo uh, saving the dwarves from the trolls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Grogu tries to use the force to get Mando out of his cage. He makes a little noise and uh, the creature hears and Mando tells Grogu to go get Bo-Katan. So Grogu escapes dodging the weird winged alligator creatures and even the cave dwellers from before. And he takes off in the, uh, with R5 back to Bo-Katan's castle. And again, I, I think my, my biggest criticism of episode one and episode two of this season is I just don't believe Bo-Katan is just spending all her days sitting on her throne, depressed, looking down at the floor. Is that what she really does every day, all day? I don't know. It's one of those things that reminds me of like, John Favreau is not a new writer, but it is a new writer sort of habit where the, the, the characters that aren't on screen or just sort of waiting in whatever room for the next scene that they're in. And they're just sort of on pause. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that was, I think that was my biggest criticism of the episode too, is that like Bo-Katan is a woman of action and all she, all she's done in these two episodes to this point is just mope. And then when the end one shows up and she's like, Oh, I'm going to tell this guy off. Um, <laughs> Suddenly, like she changes on a dime and she's like concerned. Well, I love that. I love that because she's like, because it's clear that like that uh, one of those. One of those sides of her is an act and the other side is that the real person that she's letting us in, I think. Well, I think the other thing, too, is that like. If Din Djarin's there, she knows where the Darksaber is. If Din Djarin's lost on Mandalore somewhere, 
this is her uh, only chance to get it back. So you think she cares more about the Darksaber than she's actually for, showing concern for Din? Yeah, but I think she's showing... I think it's it's a matter of respect, right? She's respecting him enough not to attack him over it. See, I, I actually think that there is... She is... She does care about Din. I don't think she knows it, maybe even until that moment. I don't think... I think it's more than just about the dark... Uh, Brad, what, are your, what is your reading about, about that moment? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It feels like... It could go either way. Like maybe she's she she does get worried because like at this point like the man Mando you know Din is gonna do what he's gonna do and like maybe she doesn't want you know to see harm befall him and maybe it's the fact that it's Grogu that arrives that that she gets concerned you know maybe for for his well being too uh you know if if something has happened to Din but I do think that she does have that motivation of wanting the dark saber and that, you know, she doesn't want it to be lost somewhere where she has no idea where it is because then she has no chance of getting it back. So maybe a a little column, a a little column B. Okay. Uh, Bo-Katan, Grogu and R5 make their way back to Mandalore in uh, her ship. And uh, we see this really cool aerial look of the remains of uh, the, one of those dome cities that you were talking about earlier, Brian, yeah, this cool is shot. this is Sundari City. Yeah, and it's again, this is another one of those moments that hits a lot differently when Din Djarin comes in. He's just sad because he's never seen Mandalore in its glory. And it seems almost more sad when you take into account that she used to rule Sundari City. This is where she grew up. And the devastation on Katie Sackoff's face feels a lot more palpable. So seeing Mandalore in this state through her eyes hits a lot harder. Yeah, At least she's, to me. Oh, yeah, totally. Her talking about it, it was once this beautiful civilization. Now it's a tomb. Um, I love Bo-Katan and Grogu as this kind of odd couple who are forced to work with each other. And Bo-Katan is like kind of assuring Grogu that the Mandalorian, uh, like herself, have used to fight alongside the Jedi. I don't know. It's just a, f- a funny, like, uh, uncomfortable, odd couple. I, I kind of like that vibe. Um, Bokatan notices reflections of cave dwellers above her and preemptively shoots the ceiling open, take them out. She explains what we said before about the Alamites. Uh, there's no previous mention of them again. And they, uh, they used to live in the surface wastelands beyond the cities. So, I mean, I guess, I guess Brian, because they lived in this, the wastelands, maybe they, could have lived in a more poisonous environment as well. So maybe that's possible. Um, Mando is still trapped in this rotisserie cage and Mando's blood is being harvested from him through these tubes using this droid to suck out his blood. Uh, What do you think this droid creature is doing with with the Mandalorian blood? Bathing in it? (laughs) I don't even know. Like, it doesn't even really matter. Actually, uh, Rafael Motomayor wrote a, a cool piece about how he just likes how uh, twisted and, like, mad scientist-y this, this, you know, character is. And, like, it doesn't even really matter what he's doing. Like, just the fact that he's drawing blood, it's like, oh, this guy's a fucking weirdo. <laughs> uh, okay, so Bo-Katan uh, comes in blasters ablazing, and uh, the... Well, tr- what were you going to say? I, I want to say we skipped a little bit of a part where she had to fight... 
those creatures as well. Yeah. And I just thought that was a great contrast in how much of a, a problem they gave Din and how much more gracefully she dispatched them. Well, yeah, she was a lot more, uh, I mean, her martial art kind of background kind of shows through here where he's kind of like this brawler, like, you know, get the things done any way possible. Um, yeah. She's more, yeah. She's more, way more elegant about it. Yes. Um, okay, so uh, the dread creature comes at her um, with her energy, with his energy staff, and she's able to make waste to him eventually uh, once she gets a hold of Mando's Darksaber. Uh, I, I got the impression, and I don't know, like, I'm just throwing this out there, but one of the key storylines in rebels of Sabine was that Sabine was developing a super weapon for the empire that was used on Mandalore that could be used only to affect Beskar. And it's look reminded me of this staff that this creature has. Um, And the way it affects Bo-Katan sort of reminded me of how that worked. I don't know if there's a connection there, but I thought it was worth mentioning. That is worth mentioning. Um, Okay. uh, So the, there's some cool action. I I love the the same thing you mentioned before. The the once the head gets knocked off, it has like these insecticide legs and it wanders away and gets into the mech. And um, uh, Mando thanks Bo-Katan for rescuing him, and uh, she ser- uh, she serves him some pog soup. Is pog soup a thing? Is that a? I couldn't find anything about it, and I don't remember anything about it. That doesn't mean it's not a thing. I am not, uh, I am not the end all be all of, yeah. of where this is. If it was anywhere, I would not be surprised if Pablo Hidalgo could point to a specific page in a specific book in the West End role playing <laughs> game where this came from. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I couldn't find anything on it. Well, Mando isn't going back with her. He needs to complete his mission to bathe in the mines. Believe. Uh, below the minds of Mandalore and Bukatan thinks he's stupid for believing these silly stories. She says there's nothing magic about those. Wow. Those waters, but he believes in the, the creed is important for the survival of their people. Like there are two different minds here coming at it. Uh, wanted to ask you, do you, do you think Bukatan really doesn't believe in any of these, these myths, any of these things that she grew up with her entire life? I mean, I think she believes in the stories as much as like in the power of there being a story, but I don't necessarily think she thinks there's anything supernatural about it. It's like she's she's totally agnostic about it and goes through the motions because that's what the people expect. Brad, what do you think? Do you think Bokatan is completely just, um, you know, doesn't believe in any of this stuff or? Maybe she doesn't want to believe in it or. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a thing where, like, if you are a a person who is uh, raised a, a certain way that you kind of shy away from the customs and traditions that are like thrust upon you, you know, like if you're, uh, you know, a, a pastor's son or a preacher's daughter, you something like that, like you, you kind of end up rebelling against that just because it's expected of you. And so. Part of me wonders if there's if there's a bit of it to that, but also just like 
this idea of like you know generations changing with time too and like you know things becoming less important as time goes on as you realize the world is different around you and things change you don't have to be dedicated to these things you know as as you know you've been instructed to yeah so she's basically the mandalorian atheist is what you're saying yeah yeah sure (laughs) um okay so bo offers to take him there she has been there as a child uh, she obviously did like ceremonies there and stuff, uh, but claims it was all rituals. It was just royal theater. It was nothing to it. Uh, she tells Mando about her father who died defending Mandalore. Brian, what do you make out of all this, this conversation about her father? I mean, her father's obviously dead, but it seems like set up for something. So this is the first window we've got into the past uh, or the, the childhood of Bo-Katan and her sister, the Duchess Satine, and their father. And the first story we get is something about how he gave his life to save Mandalore. And this is kind of what I was talking about, about the two of them getting beneath each other's surface. And this is something that Din respects enough to actually say this is the way to her. Um it's a very touching moment where he realizes that even if she doesn't believe in being a Mandalorian in the same way he does, they're both willing to sacrifice for it. And I think it brings a newfound respect for her on Bo-Katan's part or on Din Djarin's part here. Okay. Uh, my dog's coughing in the background. So apologies if you're some <laughs> weird coughing. Uh, okay, so they arrive at the the Living Waters, which date back to the age of the first Mandalorian. Legend has it this cave used to be a mythosaur lair. So there's some cool mythology here. We finally, finally, we know uh, why the mythosaur is such a big part of the Mandalorians. It dates back to the first first Mandalorian. And this is stuff that's all been in legends. Yeah, um, Mando walks into the waters like there's these stairs that go into the water it's kind of cool looking and he recites the creed before being pulled down into the abyss i've brad i have a question for you Mm -hmm. is it possible to do a mandalorian baptism without it being interrupted by an alien creature below the water surface it would seem not (laughs) (laughs) and what do you think pulled him down like are we led to believe that that was the creature below or was it something else oh that wasn't the creature that was him being a dummy he took his jetpack off he walked out into the water and he's wearing how many pounds of beskar armor oh and he okay. just steps off the shelf at the same time though he he wasn't moving at the bottom of the thing so like well I don't I mean, know. Like he was, he wasn't underwater long enough to pass out, and he didn't. I mean, unless he like hit his head on something on the way down, which I guess is entirely possible. But like, I don't know. That that seemed kind of weird to me. The pressure change would be enough to mess him up. Like it was a maybe. long way down, maybe, yeah. and he wasn't it, expecting it. And I his, will say his it, suit wasn't maybe. pressurized. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I will say it's interesting how they played this out instead of them showing us that, like. Uh, Brian, I feel like if they had focused on Din and they had followed him down there and showed what happened to him, we could have seen that. But instead, we are seeing everything through Bogotan's 
point of view, even like with her, you know, we're only seeing what we could see with the light coming off her helmet lamps. So it's interesting that we didn't see what happened. I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm not the, uh, the flat, the flat Mandalorian uh, Mandalore or whatever <laughs> coming up with a, uh, a, uh, conspiracy theory here but i don't know I, I just wonder if there's something more to it than just the the armor being heavy well i think it's i think i mean to me i read it as a sign of of din's faith that he was willing to step into those waters and in his full armor and just not assume anything bad could happen there because it's such a spiritual place for him yeah. Like he's just not thinking because he's wowed by the majesty and the history of the place. So Bokatan finds Din, uh, swims him up, falling like the uh, the side of the the pool or the whatever you want to call it the uh, <laughs> the, the water there, the living seas, um, and uh, comes across what looks like is an actual mythosaur below the water. And this is something I, you know, I, I gotta say, they've been playing up the Mythosaur stuff since maybe season one. Was it season one? Yeah, I guess season one. Yeah, Quill talked about how his ancestors rode the great Mythosaur, and he should be grateful he can ride a Blurg. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, like, I expected us to finally see a Mythosaur at some point. But I thought it was going to happen in like a finale episode or something like that. Not in the second episode of a season. So this is another example of like me being surprised at how much they're they're doing in the second episode. This is another example of how important Book of Boba Fett is for this show, too. If you go back and listen to what the armorer told him, she tells him of these prophecies that they've been singing for eons about how the mythosaur would rise again and usher in a new age of Mandalore. Yeah. Well, we, we can talk about that more in speculation. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I do want to point out one thing too. There's a really great bit of connected symbolism with the beginning of the first episode and the end of this episode where these Mandalorian baptisms, you're right. They are interrupted by these giant creatures, but the first one is the creature almost trying to chase them away. And this one is the actual mythosaur and it doesn't do anything but open its eyes. And it really made me feel like this is where like symbolically, this is where those Mandalorians are supposed to be. Hmm. Like, like that other creature on that other planet was trying to chase them away. And that's why they're having those problems. Okay, Brad, I have another question for you. Okay. Now that the Mythosaur is no longer a myth, is it going to get renamed the Confirmasaur? Oh, boy, Peter. What are we doing? Dad jokes here? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, So uh, what what do you think about the Mythosaur, Brad? I mean, we we only get a glimpse of it, but it's it's cool that we finally get to see one in the flesh and actually, you know, more than just uh, a skull that we've seen for so long. You know, it's, it's been part of Star Wars lore for even longer than Mandalorian, you know, only recently did it feel like, oh, we'll finally actually get to, to see one, you know, so this is, this is pretty cool, and I, I do wonder, like, what kind of, if it will play, you know, kind of a, a bigger role in uh, in the series, you know, I, I don't necessarily know how, but it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be pretty cool, I think. Well, we'll talk about that in a few minutes in speculation, but before that, they escape to the surface, 
Bo-Katan is looking at the the living waters before we cut to black. And I, I think this look, even with the helmet on, you could feel like, like something. Do you think her beliefs have changed at all after seeing the mythosaur below the waters? Oh, I think, I think this, the arrival of the mythosaur is going to change a lot of things drastically for both of them, including their belief systems. Okay. Uh, Brad, did you have anything else to say about this episode? No. Then we will get into speculation. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay. We're back for speculation. Uh, I have a bunch of questions to pose to you guys. Uh, first of all, uh, where do you think this leaves Bo-Katan? Like, what, what, what do you think? What, um, what do you think her mindset is after seeing this and experiencing this on this uh, adventure with, with Din? I mean, it's got to blow her mind. Yeah. So do you, do you think like her, like, (laughs) it's interesting because I feel like the season has been set up in an interesting way that like the only thing we knew about the season is like, Din needs to go to this, the waters on, he needs to baptize himself on Mandalore to be redeemed. And that's literally the only goal that has been set up by the by the season itself. I think. Am I, am I incorrect? No, I think I think that's what the promise was, is that Din was going to redeem himself. And that's done. That's taken care of. He he took his little bath. So where do we go um, from here? So I think for Bo-Katan, I think there's two really compelling forks in the story they could take her. One, she turns true believer and listens to those stories and the pomp and circumstance and says, okay, now I believe it. You're wielding the Darksaber. You brought the Mythosaur back you let us back here. I'm going to follow you. Or she goes, well, I'm the one who led you here and I'm the one who put you in contact with the dark saber. I'm going to take this now and we're going to unite Mandalore together or you're going to, you know, or I should have just left you there and they're going to have a conflict. Um, I, I, my guess is it's probably going to head into conflict rather than her acquiescing to him. But I think that this complication is going to cause the crux of the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I I mean, I think they're going to be aligned for a little bit here. That's what it seems like to me. But it's obviously going to lead to a conflict. Um, uh, now that the Mandalorian, uh, Din, has, uh, you know done what uh, was expected of him and uh, bathed in, in the, the waters, is the armor actually going to accept Mando back into the into the group? I wonder, and I wonder especially if he brings Bo-Katan with him. Well, that's like, interesting too because like, I feel like Bo-Katan and the armor would butt heads. Well, and I think in that first episode this season, like the armorer made that apparent, or or was it in Book of Boba Fett? What do you mean? Either made way. it apparent? 
like that that Bo-Katan was a pretender. No, it was in Book of Boba Fett when she's oh, yeah, like Bo-Katan yeah. didn't win it justly. She thought she could rule without having won it and being given it and it didn't matter and she's she led us all to ruin and it was her that cursed the Mandalorian stuff. Brad, you were going to say something? No, I mean I think that like uh we probably have to see the armor and Bo-Katan fight at some point. I feel like that's like, that's something that would be really cool to see uh, come to fruition. Um, but also, you know, I, yeah, I do feel like um, I, I, I get most excited when we get to this part of uh, the, the season when we don't know what, what's happening next. And the, the one thing I'm, I'm most curious about is there's one shot uh, in the, tr- uh, that I noticed recently in the trailer uh, that probably will be happening either in the next episode or pretty close because it's it's Bo-Katan's ship flying. Uh, I, I what looks like I think it's through through Mandalore, and there are Tie Fighters uh, chasing her ship. So I'm wondering hmm. exactly why the Empire comes into play here, and what's what's going to happen with that. Could that be another flashback? Mm. I feel like that would be a little too much of a coincidence. Has, well, but, I mean, has she's Bo-Katan ship? Has she been oh. to Mandalore since the glassing? I don't. I don't necessarily think so. I don't know. It looked. It, it didn't. It looked like an already ruined Mandalore, rather than a Mandalore that was in the process of being bombed and destroyed. So I think it's. It's like following the events of this episode. I would think that would be correct because it seemed like her reaction to the planet yeah. was like her first. Like it's not like she's been there before. It's. It seemed like when she was walking with Mando saying how it used to be a beautiful, I could be wrong, but, um, I don't know. Okay. Interesting. Uh, what, uh, back to the armor for a second. Um, I know we've kind of touched on this in the past a little bit, but like, is it at all possible that the armor has a history with Bo-Katan that it might, the armor might actually be someone Bo-Katan knows from her past. I don't know who that would be. I mean, I guess, Brian, you, you're the most knowledgeable with the Clone Wars stuff. Well, I think that there's implications that they were involved with Death Watch. They're, they're the children of the Watch, and Bo-Katan was involved with Death Watch, and Death Watch was led by Pre Vizsla, and the Armorer's chief adherent is Paz Vizsla. So there's definitely some chance for overlap that they could be tangentially related to Death Watch or a splinter of that group, a more um, fundamentalist splinter of that group. So there's every chance Bo-Katan could have run into them or into the armor per- armorer personally, and they both speak with some knowledge of each other that leads me to believe that they have some connection. I know I've seen a lot of speculation online about uh rook cast who is this uh female mandalorian warrior that uh led the shadow collectors super commandos during the clone wars um yeah rook cast uh who was voiced in the clone wars by vanessa marshall i believe um is one of those but uh i would i would guess that she hadn't completely changed over although i would say i think rook cast has the maul horns on her helmet just like the armorer does i don't think that's a coincidence okay uh what do we think is going to happen to mandalore 
I mean, I guess this season, nothing. Like, you can't have that big of a. I guess for the series, I do. You think by the end of the series, do you think the Mandalorian people will retake Mandalore? Do you think, or do you think they built rebuild somewhere else? There's a lot of legends stories where they come back and they just start reforging Mandalore. Like no matter how ruined it is, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing that now. And I don't know what complications that could be added. I know from the trailers, we're going to get some intrigue with the new Republic and maybe that could be some pushback, but with the empire gone, I don't see anybody fighting them to keep it. So it might just be them fighting amongst each other over it. Okay, you mentioned this earlier, Brian. In the Book of Boba Fett, the armor said, the songs of Ian's past foretold of the Mythosaur rising up to herald a new age of Mandalore. Uh, now uh, now that we've seen a Mythosaur, were, were those myths? I don't know. Uh, is, is what she's describing here what's going to happen in this third season of Mandalorian? Will the Mythosaur rise up? I mean, I think that's what we saw. I think that's what we were seeing. Oh, you think we witnessed the Mythosaur, right? Like, I almost feel like we're going to get, especially with uh, the the line you mentioned from the first season of, uh, you know, the Mandalorian people once rode the mighty Mythosaur. I think we're going to eventually get Mando or Bo-Katan taming a Mythosaur and ride, riding it as their ancestors did. Yeah, I'll fight back I on mean, that. Okay. <laughs> no, I, th- I think that that's probably going to happen, and that's going to be um, something else that was foreshadowed by Book of Boba Fett as Boba Fett learned to ride his Rancor. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's, it's a little bit samey, but yeah. Uh, who do you think is going to, if that happens, Brad, if that happens, if one of the Mandalorians rides the Mythosaur, who is it going to be? Is it going to be Mando? Is it going to be Bo Katan? Is it going to be. Grogu, or is it going to be someone else? I feel like it probably has to be Bo-Katan. And I feel like at that point, too, the Darksaber probably needs to be hers. And that is going to, has to be, like, the moment when, like, okay, she's, like, really going to reclaim Mandalore and, like, finally lead her people to what they've been trying to achieve after all these years. Because, I don't know, I feel like while that would be a cool moment for Din Djarin, like, he <clears throat> clearly doesn't have the same motivation and it wouldn't necessarily mean as much. He He obviously doesn't you know he's he's having trouble wielding the, the dark saber. He doesn't want to be in that position, and so I feel like that's something that has to happen for Bo-Katan. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that makes the most sense to me. Well, we've also seen Grogu communicate with like creatures, big creatures. So I don't know. That's true, but I do wonder if maybe he'll like maybe he'll he'll maybe he'll assist Bo-Katan in doing that. You know, Brian, any thoughts? I think there's two thoughts. One, I had a very funny thought of Grogu being the one to unite all of Mandalore and him writing the Mythosaur. Um, but also oh, I the armor if... would hate that. Oh yeah. Cause he's not um, Mandalorian blooded at all. Well, neither is. Din. I mean, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess he isn't Mandalorian. He's a family. I guess and, he's a family. And, just and like she's just, else. she's just abducting children now at this point. What does she care? Like, <laughs> um, but no, I, I wonder if this episode is sort of promising that Din and Bo-Katan are going to have to work together to bring Mandalore back because they both have their hands into different sects of what Mandalore is. I mean, I definitely, you know, Mandal- they've talked a lot about Mandalorians being fragmented. I definitely think they need to come together in some 
some way. But I, I also think that like it seems to be hinted that like this whole almost religious occult like uh sect of Mandalorians might not be the way to, to to do that. So I don't know. I'm not sure how you get from A to Z, but I, I see yeah. that as being like the general arc here. Okay, um Last week's episode, they made a big deal about IG-11. He went to Navarro. He got the parts out of the the statue, and he was going to revive him. Do we think that is over now that, like, because he only needed IG-11 to go to Mandalore, and now he knows it's not poison. Like, I don't know. It seems like he didn't even need IG-11 to do that. He could have gotten some other droid. I think that was just his distrust of droids and showing his character arc in season one. It was like, I don't trust droids in season two. It was like, I will tolerate droids in my vicinity in season three. It's like, I only trust one droid ever. And look at how quickly it took Pelimato to talk him out of that. So do you think we're not going to get IG, the resurrection of IG 11, which honestly I don't want. But I doubt it. I think IG Eleven's too busy working on his Star Wars movie, <laughs> which will be announced at Celebration next yeah. month. Okay. Any other speculation? That's all I had on my list, guys. I'm just excited to see where it takes us. I really have no idea what the next episode is going to bring, which is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday uh, on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns. If you have any speculation, anything we didn't pick out that we should mention on next week's Mandalorian recap podcast, email me at peter at slashfilm.com. And please, if you like this episode, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, give us a review. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.